Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello, I'm Michael Chakraverty. And I'm Mark Watson. And this is the Menkind Podcast. We're going to take a deep dive into masculinity, exploring what being a man actually means, along with a variety of brilliant guests. You know, men talking about men is a notoriously underrepresented area of podcasting. Not anymore. Well, hello again, everybody. Hello again, also. Hello. By the time you hear this, I have well and truly turned 41. And so to make me feel better, this week we have one of the few guests who are older than me, I think it's fair to say. (laughs) But that's not the only surprising thing about this guest, by a long chalk, is it, Michael? No, Alistair Campbell was a surprising interview, but I think a really interesting one. And um, as a person who's approaching masculinity from a very different perspective, I think, from what we have been used to in these conversations... Because I really do think that sometimes positive discrimination is the only way that you make the change that you need to make. Mm. We change the selection so that in certain seats there had to be a woman yeah. candidate and a lot of those women won. Thereafter, dubbed by, dubbed by the way, a word that is only ever used in newspapers, never used in real life, <laughs> dubbed by the newspapers as Blair's Babes. Blair's Babes, yeah, that awful phrase came into my head as I was asking you the question. And you're right, they were dubbed that. And it's also true, you'd never see that. Out. A bit like romp is only ever in newspapers. Yeah, romp, three in a bed romp or a five in a bed romp. You just see <laughs> only ever in newspapers. Romp shame. Hello, do you fancy a romp? Uh, no, <laughs> it's not an easy thing to get going outside of a newspaper, is it? <laughs> We were quite nervous before this one. Normally we do a, sort of quite a bit of blurbing away and going, oh, we're not very good at podcasts, we don't know what we're doing. But we had a pet talk beforehand and said, we'd better not say that to Alistair Campbell in case he just closes the lid of his laptop in the first five minutes. And- there was a certain energy to the opening of the Zoom call when he was like, right, go on then. And we were like, oh, right. Uh- yes. If we sound tense in the first five minutes, it's because we bloody were. <laughs> but... Uh- Stick with it and enjoy yourself. Yes, I would say it's eye-opening. What other words did we have? Not fascinating, eye-opening. Captivating. I mean, people can make their own minds up, I suppose. Yeah, I feel like we shouldn't judge it too much. Let us know what you think at the end. Have a nice time. Well, as usual, I'm Mark Watson. That never seems to change. Michael Chakravarty. Still still me, yeah. Chakravarty, actually. I don't always say your name right. But we're joined today by someone who'll be, well, a very familiar figure to everyone listening, I should think. But uh, Alistair Campbell... I wondered if you could introduce yourself, but maybe mention some of the stuff you've done more recently that people might be slightly less aware of. Or you can introduce yourself how you like, really. Well, the most important thing in my life is that I once played football with Diego Maradona. There you go, which uh, is not an opportunity that any of us will ever have again, unfortunately. Exactly. Nobody else who's never done that before will ever be able to say that again, unless there is a football pitch up in, you know, wherever we go after. Well, that's the thing. We've still got to go to the same place as him, haven't we? (laughs) Yeah, well, <laughs> it's very, very true. 
the hand of God may have put him somewhere else. Yeah, we don't, we don't know. It depends who God supports, I suppose, how that turns out. <laughs> oh, God's a massive Burnley fan. Everybody knows that. <laughs> no, so what, how would I introduce myself? My website says writer, communicator, strategist. And then it goes on to say best known as. I love that. Whenever I get introduced, they always say best known yeah. as. Best known as a former footballer who played with Diego Maradona. <laughs> no, best known as Tony Blair's. Director of Communications and Strategy. And then it goes on to talk about books and campaigning on mental health and consultancy and helping governments abroad and all sorts of stuff. I mean, it's difficult to summarise it just on one website, to be honest. It's funny. I, mean, I also have best known as, but mine is best known as having been on Taskmaster, whereas yours is having been one of the most influential people in the country. <laughs> <laughs> mine is even less than that, Mark. It's literally baked on television for seven hours. Best known as a baker, that. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we often start these conversations by taking our guests back to where they started. What was the first time you realised masculinity sort of existed as a concept? Oh. Good hard-hitting question to start with. No, it is a good question. And the honest answer is I'd really, really, really have to think about that. I think I was always conscious, particularly when we went back to Scotland. Your dad was Scottish, is that right? Dad was Scottish, mum was Scottish, yeah. Oh, both Scottish. Best way to be so here. I think that is absolutely 100% right. <laughs> but always very conscious of the fact, and, and I'm pretty ashamed to say that I've kind of I've absorbed this and I've maybe passed it on to my kids as well, is that, you know, men... And women do very, very different sorts of things around the place. I was always very conscious of that, not least because my dad was a vet, but actually both my parents came from farming agricultural backgrounds. My dad was a son of a crofter Hmm. up in the Hebrides, and my mum was a farmer's daughter. And I spent a lot of my my teenage years working on farms and stuff, and it was very much that the men did the work, in quotes, and then you went home and the women had cooked So I guess that was a a sense of it. And then I think the other thing that just popped into my head as I was saying that, maybe around football, maybe around football being a very, very masculine environment. Mm. Uh, And I don't just mean, you know, the fact that it was only men playing it. I meant the whole kind of experience was very, very masculine. And that has changed to some extent, but not massively. And do you think from those experiences or like with the farm and with football, do you think that kind of instilled in you a sort of idea of what qualities were associated with being a man or being a woman? I think it must have done, because I think we're all a mix of where we come from and how we're raised. And, and it's really interesting now with a, a daughter of my own who's you know in her mid-20s and very, very kind of active, radical feminist. And she has changed my views a lot. Yeah, I was going to ask about that when you said that you, you felt you'd absorbed these ideas and automatically passed them to your children. Do you, do you... Well, what I mean by that is my, my sons are both better than I am in lots of ways. But I, what I mean by that is that I think that, you know, I mean, I'm ashamed, <laughs> I'm genuinely ashamed to say this, right? I have cooked one meal in 40 years. Right. Wow. <laughs> I think the dream is to get people to say things that they're ashamed of, definitely. That... <laughs> it was a very nice Tudor and potato souffle in the flush of romance. I think it would have to be very nice for it to be your only meal in 40 years, though. Yeah. <laughs> when the kids were little, I was, I've done baked beans and stuff, but I've never, I wouldn't know how to cook a meal. I, don't, I mean, like, today is a good example, right? We got up. I mean, if Fiona's not here, I can't make the coffee. I'm sorry, I've just laid it out there, right? <laughs> this, is, this is fascinating. So you peaked as a chef 40 years ago. Yeah, I, that was the last proper thing that I cooked, yeah. And I couldn't, I, if you said to me, bake a cake, I wouldn't even, I can't change a plug. Oh, we've got someone that bakes cakes around here. Don't worry, we've got that covered. Well, I, can't, okay. I can't change plugs, I'm afraid, so I can't help you on Not that one. one of us three can change a plug now. Fiona's just been downstairs sort of putting together some kind of contraption. I don't even know what it is, but it's like a thing. 
you know, she just does it. And I, you know, then she, at one point I was watching the football and she shouted through at half time. Can you come through? I've dropped a wing nut, right? Well, I would leave a little wing nut. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'd be looking a long time before I could find a wing nut in a carpet. That actually is kind of maybe contrary to the masculine thing, because normally it would have been like my dad, for example. He used to build extensions on the house. He'd like, you know, we'd go to bed one night, we'd come down and we'd <laughs> knock the bloody wall down. Now, I can't do any of that. Absolutely can't do it. Fiona says it's not can't, it's won't. She says I won't do it. And I do, I'll be honest, I do... When she says things like, can you load the dishwasher for the first time in your life? I will do that thing of putting the spoons in the bottom and oh, putting a you're, plate. You're that person. You can get in enormous trouble for that with the wrong person. Yeah, <laughs> I do find this very interesting, though, because, yeah, you, you started off saying that you, you sort of been brought up and brought into you know, particular roles. Like men do this, women do that. But, yeah, certainly one of the stereotypes is men fix stuff around the house, for example. Yeah, exactly. Men construct. And I'm the same as you. I, I never... I can't make anything or basically, but that, so you haven't automatically subscribed to the idea that because a lot of traditional manly men will, will think it's automatically on them to do that stuff, fix the stuff. Uh, no, I don't think that at all. I think some people are very practical. Some people are very creative. Some people are lucky enough to be both. Yeah. You know, and things like within, within our kind of household, I mean, Fiona, like, you know, anything to do with, you know, online. Oh my God. Can we break from it? Somebody at the door. That's I, I heard that. Yeah. That's yeah. Fine. We can pause it. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay, just pause it. Hold on. I know where it is. It's a long way away as well. <laughs> He's got a lovely chair. I don't think we're going to use this, but if I had to describe, how would you just, it's like it's got a floating headrest with a pole, which is then attached to your kind of lower back support. I think after that, we probably can use it. You've actually painted a picture with your words. It looks there, like a Star Trek. Right, let me get my breath back. I is. We were just admiring your chair, Alistair. Yeah, we were impressed like with a Star chair. Trek chair. Do you like it? You look like you're about to like fly a ship through space. It's, it's impressive, yeah. Sorry, we got distracted. What were, we, what were we talking about? We were talking about the fact that Alistair is the sort of on the creative side of the creative practical spectrum and just mm. hands the practicals, which is interesting, isn't it? Because I sort of feel the same. I think that within relationships, some people are just clearly better. But you say that your wife reckons it's to do with your lack of will. Yeah, Fiona, she does, you know, holidays, banking, everything. <laughs> and, you know, the other thing, I'm absolutely hopeless at computers. Mm. Just can't do it, you know. Hmm. She's very good. So ten times a day, my office is up here at the top of the house, which is why I'm after breath after running upstairs. And <laughs> Fiona's two floors down, but five to ten times a day, she has to come up and sort out. And and the common refrain, "What's your password?" Not a clue. <laughs> I mean, we had that conversation earlier on. We've done Mark. some password work today, and it's not easy. More than one password for different things, and I'm, I'm screwed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So when you were growing up, were there elements of masculinity that you found yourself drawn to? I mean, you've mentioned that you're a football fan. Were there other things that you found yourself stereotypically drawn to? Well, I don't know whether it's a masculinity thing, but I, I was an abs, you know, sports fanatic. And all of the sports that I liked and either got involved in either as playing or spectating, they were very male. Yeah. Mm. Football, cricket and rugby league were the kind of three sports that I really sort of got into and then I also once I was into my teens I started playing golf as well which was very kind of masculine I played snooker I quite like boxing and of course it's a bit different now I think you know just watching the Burnley game now and I actually thought that Rachel Brown is the, was one of the pundits yeah former England goalkeeper yeah she's terrific she's really really good football pundit when I was growing up you know the idea of women playing football playing rugby league but now, I mean, I, w- I actually watched a women's rugby league game on telly and, you know, it was really, really good quality. So, I mean, I might say that was being 
drawn to what at the time were predominantly masculine things. But whether I would have seen it as part of that, I just don't know. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. My kids are well, 10 and 6, and they find it odd that women wouldn't play any specific game, basically. Even, mm. even though my son is quite sort of boysy, he, um, mm. he assumes that a, a woman footballer is just... Yeah, just a footballer. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it yeah. makes me think that sport won't be seen in the same way. You know, some of these traditional masculine enclaves maybe won't last into another generation. Well, I think the two sports, which were maybe ahead of their time, as it were, for different reasons, were track and field, athletics and tennis. I can remember when I was growing up, that was the one sport, I think, tennis, where it was an annual kind of massive event, the whole Wimbledon thing. I'm not a big fan of tennis, and I think one of the reasons is that my mum used to really like Wimbledon, and we, we just ate cold food for two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> you know, she'd sort of get home with a bit of cold food on the table because she was watching Billie Jean King or Rod Laver or something. Wimbledon destroyed your food options, basically, yeah. Yeah. Remember, for example, when Mary Peters was a very sort of, you know, when I was growing up, really big kind of athletic star. Yeah. You know, for my kids' generation, somebody like Kelly Holmes, you just think she's an athlete. You don't yeah. really think woman or man. But I think apart from athletics and tennis, I don't think you had that in sport. And you certainly didn't have it in the sports that I follow. I'm interested in in terms of things that are seen as male spaces. What, um, you went to Keys College in Cambridge, was it? Yeah. Um, I was at Cambridge in the sort of late 90s. And even then, there was a sense that some aspects of it were quite male that it had historically been a men oh, sort of God, place. Yeah. And, you know, there was there were still people that, there weren't loads of them, but there were people around that still lamented the fact women were allowed in certain colleges and stuff. And that's, so I wonder what it was like when you were there. I wonder if that's one of the reasons why I really didn't like it. I went to a school in Leicester. I grew up in Yorkshire and then we moved when I was 11. Uh, and I think I was the first person from my school to go to Oxbridge. Mm. I probably went too young. I was only just 18. And I really, Same. really, really didn't like it. And the thing I didn't like, it, I didn't like the stuffiness. I really didn't like a lot of the people, the ones who were sort of, you know, the braying Boris Johnson types. By the time I was there, yeah, it wasn't as much of that, but nonetheless. Yeah. So I went to an all-male college. They take women now, but I went to an all-male college and it was just weird. I found it weird. Yeah, there are no longer any all-male colleges there. No. But even the idea of it seems very strange to me. I still think when you go there, it's a very masculine place, though. Yeah, that's sort of what I was asking about. Again, I'm, (laughs) I'm telling you all the things I'm ashamed of. Ashamed of my lack of practicality. I am quite ashamed of some of the things I did at university, but I did it out of a sort of, I think, uh, partly placed and partly misplaced sense of taking on these awful people. Absolutely. I think a lot of the stuff I did at university was also in that mentality. And it's probably why I ended up having more friendships with women as well as a sort of, as a reaction to something that you're talking about. Yeah. And, you know, my drinking got out of control there. and And then I did used to get quite violent when I was drunk and get into a lot of fights and stuff like that. But usually I would kind of justify to myself that I was, you know, I was having to go at somebody because he... You were rebelling against that. He, yeah, he went to a ridiculous school and talked with a ridiculous accent, wore ridiculous clothes and went around the place treating everybody else like dirt. But I was very, very conscious of it being, not just that it was masculine, but it was also that where there were women, that they were sort of treated either as weird people who shouldn't be there or as kind of sex objects that was that was kind of the two roles they it seemed to me that they had no whenever I've been back I haven't been back to Cambridge much and I think that's a story in itself but whenever I have I do feel it's better but I can still see all the things there that I really didn't like yeah and so you came out of that environment into presumably politics at the level you were involved at in a way I got into politics via journalism and yeah yeah I'd say journalism was 
I was on the mirror mainly, and it was it was masculine in that it was you know there's a lot of kind of macho characters around. I'd say it was quite a racist culture, quite a sexist culture, very 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 high drinking culture. Now that doesn't always go, by the way, with you know some of the biggest drinkers were women. Mm. Some of the people who really got into trouble with drink were women. That's interesting because as soon as you said it, I imagined blokes drinking in it. Yeah, know. and that's probably why I said it is that you know, like for example, Annie Robinson was a great colleague and has always been a good friend of ours, and and you know she was an alcoholic, and uh, I got into trouble with drink, and it was kind of back to the macho thing, I guess. You were seen as a bit weird if you didn't drink too much. You know, that very was, interesting. Yeah. I was going to ask you. You kind of talked about being in an, in an all male college and then moving into quite a macho culture. How did you process that? How did you respond to that yourself? Was that where the drinking came from or were there other ways that you kind of managed that environment? Um, I don't know if I did process it in those terms because it all kind of felt quite natural. It didn't feel odd. Hmm. And I think the drinking is a problem. I think that started, to be honest, I think it started in my teens. Right. I think I started drinking heavily in my teens. And I think also I was very high functioning. It's interesting, when I kind of finally crashed and burned and was advised that, you know, it was probably better if I didn't drink, I had, you know, several quite close friends who said, you know, didn't really think you drank that much. Yeah. And one of the reasons was I didn't get drunk that much. I mean, I drank quantities that today I would be physically incapable of doing. I couldn't even do it if you kind of paid me, you know, $25 million. I couldn't do it. Which we can't do anyway. No, but I'm just sort of suggesting if you wanted to, if you'd want <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you can get them. I mean, look, you've got some nice paintings there. You could flog them. That's true. <laughs> We've got some sort of a budget, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't see it as a kind of macho thing. Because it predated that, that sort of, well, yeah. I think so. And also, I, I think with the... With the newspaper culture, and it's interesting because Fiona, my partner, who you know we've been together forty years, I say, so we started out as journalists together. That's how we met. I think it was quite interesting to watch the two of us mapping simultaneously our careers. I think I think that I was seen as kind of quite alpha male, yeah, and Fiona had to be in a sense, a difference. I'm never saying she was always kind of authentically who she is, but you ha I think as a woman, you had to do it differently. I think the women who kind of tried to be one of the lads, I think it just never quite worked for them. Yeah. You have spoken very openly about drinking, but also about your mental health. And I know you've written about it really brilliantly. When did you start to kind of recognize... Well, in, in the book. Oh, the, the book that you wanted to mention, The Living Better book. You, you, I didn't want to mention it. I think you wanted to mention it. You wanted to say... We've actually been really nervous that the book wouldn't come up, but it looks like it is coming up now, uh, yeah. You wanted to say it was called Living Better, How I Learned to Survive Depression, John Murray Books, <laughs> Available in all good bookshops. We were yeah. about to hold that up on a card for you to read because we were so nervous that it wouldn't come up yeah but it's out of the way <laughs> when did you start to kind of experience those mental health issues i honestly don't know that i say mm. I, a lot of the book is actually about stuff that i've done with my psychiatrist in terms of yeah. yeah working it through and exercise and stuff like that and when i first met him he asked me that very question he said when was your first sense of feeling whatever and you know it's really strange because if you said to me what was my childhood like Fiona thinks it's really strange that I don't have that much memory of it. But insofar as I have an impression, it was as of a very happy childhood hmm. with two parents who were always there for us. Well, my dad was a bit like me. He was a workaholic to some extent. And, it, you know, he was always working hard. But I never felt that was anything other than a kind of, you know, well-loved, well-looked-after child. But I definitely had moments through my late single figures into teens when I was 
sort of quite conscious of the need to be able to look after myself. Right. I can remember having that feeling that this is sort of post-facto rationalization, but if I had to summarize it, it's like, you know, there's a lot of bad stuff out there. There's quite a lot of bad people out there. You've got to learn how to look after yourself and you've got to be able to rely on yourself. Mm. I can remember having that feeling quite a lot. And do you remember being able to kind of articulate that feeling? Obviously, it's easy to look back knowing what it was now and kind of apply that. But at the time, were you able to kind of express yourself to anybody? No, I don't think on that because I was always very quite gregarious and quite popular with lots of different people. I was never, I've never been somebody who's felt the need for millions of friends. I've, I've always had a you know, small number of good friends at various mm. stages of my life. But I was always kind of quite popular. I was always somebody that other people seemed to warm to and take to. And I, I think I was always able to make people laugh. I was always able to entertain people. I never felt that kind of need to articulate. It's just that when you ask me now, when I was kind of unpicking my whole kind of psyche with, with a psychiatrist, that was the thing that sort of popped back in, just the two or three moments in my life, you know, when I thought, hmm, I've really got to learn to look after myself here. And again, this is, again, post-factor, so it's not an easy question to answer. But when you were starting to get into trouble drinking-wise, did you think you were doing it to sort of, you know, feel better, take the edge off or whatever? I'm asking with a bit of personal interest here because I... I uh, love drinking but I'm also aware occasionally that I'm doing it in order to not yeah. not grapple with my own brain and that's the side of it that I'm worried about occasionally I think this is very very post facto I don't think I was conscious of that feeling I think that like a lot of people who develop a drink problem I was very conscious of giving myself utterly rational reasons to do what I was doing mm, yeah so like I really like beer yeah when I've had a few beers I really like scotch when I'm in a pub I really like the atmosphere. Absolutely. When I've been to a football match, nothing better than getting back and going straight to the pub you mate. You know, whatever the situation, you you start to tailor it. There's always a reason. Yeah. 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 And then you do the other thing of sort of, you know, well, I'm not drinking that much because, you know, he drank more. Yeah, I don't feel great waking up with a hangover, but it's not as bad as I had last Tuesday. Yeah. But what it might be is that what you're actually doing is, as you say, giving yourself that kind of artificial lift that alcohol, I think, can do. Because the one thing my psychiatrist says to me the whole time is that drink will improve your mood in the short term, but long term, it's a depressant. Mm. And, you know, if I think back again, you know, when you ask the questions and various sort of images pop into your head, and, you know, I just used to love that feeling. And often on my own, of just walking into a pub and having that first drink, it was like... Oh, it's wonderful. I, again, I'm not saying it to be frivolous. I, I genuinely do also. There's nothing quite like that feeling of, especially at a particular time of day, first drink in your hand, a sense that the world is receding away a bit. Yeah. What I was also quickly conscious of was how I could then translate that into, right, I'm now in a better mood. And you can persuade yourself that means you're somehow a better person. That's me as well, yeah. I'm finding this quite a confronting chat. <laughs> and it's interesting, I think, you know, I didn't get into drinking until quite a lot later in life, but it is true that a lot of men drink in a kind of fairly performative way, like, a, you know, a few pints and stuff like that. And it's, I think it's easier to develop a problem if you have a more individual relationship with it like that. Like, I was never one of those guys. I just came to really like wine. Like you say, there's, there's an idea that men... There's something a bit odd about you if you don't drink, but in a way that's can be a less harmful form of drinking because it is like a lot of stuff men do together, more of a pantomime. And mm. you know, I think yeah, it's interesting. It's quite interesting now though because I I've got a, it's not a phobia, but I I don't go in pubs mm. because I I think I know that that feeling that I used to have of that moment of walking into a pub and the atmosphere and the smoke and the 
in a sense, you walk into a place where excessive drinking that will damage yourself is not only justified, it's the purpose of the place. Yeah, everything is specifically set up for you to do just that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's what it's there for. So why wouldn't you do it? And now, if I go into a pub, one of two things happen. Either I feel a little bit on edge because you're never more than – there's usually quite a few twats in pubs. Oh, that's definitely true, yeah. And they've had a few and they might fancy having a go. And that has happened. And the second thing is just that I now know that that justification I gave to myself back in the day was one that ultimately did me a lot of damage. Yeah. And I see the other people that damages now and it really kind of quite upsets me. Yeah. You spoke about finding Oxbridge challenging because of the kind of people that were there and that you didn't find that you related to them particularly well. Did that feeling continue while you were working in politics? Because that can be quite a similar kind of vibe. Yeah. Up to a point, I mean, don't forget on the kind of masculine thing that the single most dominant figure in my work for the whole time I was a political journalist was Margaret Thatcher. Yeah. She was the person about whom I was writing probably every single day. Yeah. And in terms of the kind of open quotes, class war stuff, yes, there was an awful lot of that around, but I was very much, I was very lucky in a way that I was on the Daily Mirror and I was very much on the side of people like Neil Kinnock and Dennis Skinner and David Blunkett and all these sort of people who were around that I could identify with and feel that I was on their, kind of in their gang, really. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the Tory party was changing to some extent, but I remember once I, I mean, God, when you think what the press do these days, I, I once did a thing where there was some story, I can't remember what it was. And we did a thing in the mirror. If you want to phone and protest to your MP, here's the number you should ring. And I gave the switchboard of parliament, right? I got summoned to the sergeant of arms who was in his full uniform with his tights and his frilly shirt. It's never good news to be summoned to the sergeant of arms, is it? <laughs> he had a voice like, you know, with a plum stuck right down here and giving me an absolute bollocking, you know, and how dare you're put in and the switchboard has been ringing off all day because of your, <laughs> how would you like it if we put your fair number in a newspaper? When you think about it now, where... Yeah, it seems pretty tame by today's standards, doesn't it? <laughs> Incredible, isn't it? But no, I actually enjoyed working in Parliament. I didn't. I think I enjoyed being a journalist. I enjoyed having a very clear role, you know, and it was like, to be fair to Thatcher and Bernard Ingham, her press guy, you know, I never felt that I was excluded in a way that this lot seemed to exclude quite a lot of people that they don't like or boycott them or whatever. Mm, yeah. So, you know, I, I had a pretty good time. But that was very, very male. And, and even when we were in power and I was doing the, the briefings and the, the political media would come in and sit in my office twice a day. Very few women. Yeah. Very few. Tony Blair did bring more women into the Labour force, didn't he? And- yeah, we did. I mean, I've, I've actually become a real, you know, this and other issues. I really do think that sometimes positive discrimination is the only way that you make the change that you need to make. Mm. We changed the selection so that in certain seats there had to be a woman yeah. candidate and a lot of those women won. Thereafter, dubbed by, dubbed by the way, a word that is only ever used in newspapers, never used in real life, <laughs> dubbed by the newspapers as Blair's Babes. Blair's Babes, yeah, that awful phrase came into my head as I was asking you the question. And you're mm. right, they were dubbed that. And it's also true, you'd never see that. Out. A bit like romp is only ever in newspapers. Yeah, romp, three in a bed romp or a five in a bed romp. You just <laughs> see them in newspapers. Romp shame. Hello, do you fancy a romp? I uh, know, it's, it's, it's not an easy thing to get going outside <laughs> of a newspaper, is it? <laughs> Keith Waterhouse, who was a genius, 
I wish I had it there, but he actually wrote the Daily Mirror style book, which is a brilliant piece of writing, but it had a whole list of those words that only ever appear in uh, in newspapers. Nobody ever says that. Yeah, boffins instead of scientists as well. Gosh, yes. Boffins produce vaccine. It, no one in their right mind has ever said that in real life. <laughs> You have spoken quite openly about your mental health at that time as well. And I think there's a lot of stigma around men talking about their mental health. And I know you were experiencing some challenges with your mental health, but you were quite open with Tony Blair at the time. Could you talk about that a bit? Because that seems quite quite a forward thinking thing to be able to do and quite a brave thing to be able to do when the conversation wasn't quite as open as it perhaps is now. Yeah, you see, I've never felt this. I'm very, very, very conscious of the stigma. Mm very conscious of the taboo and I've seen the horrible impact it can have on people particularly in the workplace but individually me I've never experienced it you didn't have a problem talking about it well it's not just I don't have a problem talking about it I've never felt really that it's been held against me Hmm. so for example I'll come on to the story about Tony but when I had a breakdown in the 80s one of the first people who phoned me up when I was in hospital was my old boss that I'd left to go to the paper where I had the breakdown wow okay and he phoned me up and said, listen, why don't you just take their money till you get better, then come back here and, and get your old job back. Oh, wow. Amazing. Yeah. And then when I went back to the Mirror, even though newspapers is, is like a very tough environment, and certainly was back in the 80s, actually, in the main, everybody was absolutely brilliant, really mm. good people. You know, the thing about one or two would try and get you to go to the pub, but most of them, it was like, just understood. So I never felt that thing, but I had to be quiet about it. When Tony asked me to work for him, and we had this long strange uh, what's the word when he was he was trying to woo me because i'd said no yeah. courtship <laughs> i don't want to do it and he came out to france where we were on holiday and sort of talked me into it and i said okay i'm gonna do it but you need to know a lot about me yeah. and of course we were friends right we'd known each other ever since he became an mp but i said to him like you know i had a breakdown i'm going to tell you about it i'm going to tell you all about it so as you just know this is what the sort of stuff that goes in my head you need to know about my drinking. You need to know about this. And I told him all this stuff. And then he just said, well, I'm not bothered. So Tony Blair was unruffled by all of this stuff. He, no, he, he said, I'm not bothered if you're not bothered. And I said, well, what if I'm bothered? And he said, I'm still not bothered. Yeah. He said, actually, funny enough, when the recent book came out, Living Better, How I Learned to Survive Depression, John Murray. Oh, that book that you... The one that's you available in all the good bookshops. Book yeah, yeah. Everywhere, yeah. all over the place. You can get it on Amazon, but I don't think, you know, I'd, I'd rather you went down to... <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah. But he actually, when he read it, he, he said, bloody, it's really, really that bad. And what he meant by that was that, because when I was in a state of depression at work, nine times out of 10, I would just power my way through it. Yeah. I wouldn't be as gregarious. I wouldn't be as energetic. I'd avoid people. You'd know, and he would always know when I was kind of in a bad mood, but he never saw it as ill. And what would happen was I'd get home and then I would just kind of crash. Yeah. But no, he was, listen, I'm not good at working with people that I don't like. I'm not good at working with people that I don't respect and I don't, and particularly if they're my boss. And, you know, Tony was a very, very good boss and, and really good to work with. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. 
PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You've done an enormous amount of advocacy and charity work for mental health causes in recent years. Is that... Is there a specific thing that made you want to do that? Is it because you're aware that not everyone is comfortable talking about it in the way that you were? or, or just... It wasn't sort of planned. I think that I've always had an interest in mental illness, which probably started when my brother, who was in the army, he got invalided out because he had schizophrenia. He was diagnosed as having mm. schizophrenia. Yeah. And that was when I was in my teens. It was just before I went to Cambridge, which may, by the way, have been another reason why I went off the rails at Cambridge. Mm. In fact, post facto, when I've made documentaries and stuff about my mental health and what have you, all these experts have said, listen, that is it. If you've got nothing in your childhood, it's probably that. Anyway, I'd say to them, look, you know, it's maybe not as simple as that, but I think it definitely had an effect. It's funny how easy it is to make sense of your life when it's much too late. When it's not yours, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But interestingly enough, when I wrote the book, I sent it to my sister because obviously I wanted my family to feel comfortable with everything that I was saying in it. Yeah. Because I was writing about my brother and my parents and my cousin who killed himself and my own kids and Callum who's, you know, recovering alcoholic and stuff like this. And Liz, my sister, said she had eating issues that coincided with that as well. She suddenly developed a problem with eating. I just completely blotted this out. Again, around the time of your brother being unwell. Around the time that Donald was diagnosed. Uh-huh. So that was when I first started. Donald was the kind of big thing. What happened then was that when I went into number 10, when we got into number 10, somebody had heard me talking about my breakdown and mine, the charity, got in touch with me and asked mm. if I would talk about it. for a sun- I think it was the Sunday Times were doing a big thing on is the taboo breaking and could they find people to talk about it? And yeah. I first of all said no. I said, I don't think it's my place. I'm a spokesman. I'm not the main bloke and da-da-da. But then I thought, you know what, maybe I should. And so I did it. That was about it. And then what happened was when I'd left number 10, I had all this stuff going on in my head and it was quite a strange period. And it was, that was actually when I really was in quite a bad way. And I wrote a novel. I wrote a novel called All in the Mind, which was about a psychiatrist and his relationship with his patients. And a lot of my kind of stuff is in there in different people, including the breakdown and and all sorts of other stuff. I didn't even know about this novel until last week, actually. It's, right. It's, sure, a range of stuff you've done is... Uh, yeah. to... <laughs> but what was interesting about that is that then I thought, well, when I'm out talking about the novel, it's going to be really weird if people say, well, why did you write it? And hmm. if I don't talk about myself. So that's when I decided to do the TV. Right. So it all kind of just evolved. Mm. Yeah. I mean, now I do, I do something on this pretty much every day, and I'm involved in several charities. I've got a, There's an organisation I work with, now, also on mental health in Australia. I do different things in different parts of the world. and. I think the other thing is that I, the skill set that I have in terms of language and strategy and messaging and campaigning, I have stayed sort of involved with the Labour Party on and off. 
got involved with the Scottish referendum, got involved with the, the People's Vote campaign and stuff like that. I don't think I'm ever going to do political campaigning in the way I did before. So this maybe fills that gap in a way, or, you know, it, hmm. I don't think it fills it, but it's part of it. It's a way of turning your skills to something which... Yeah, and I think I can make a difference on it. And I do look at, I notice them, I and even we went for a walk with the dog on the heat this morning, and, you know, you get stopped by a lot of people just for this, that, and the other. I would say three of them were to talk about mental health. Really? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Two women and one bloke, but both of the women wanted to talk about people in their family. And do you find that, and I'm only asking again because I, I sort of see echoes of my own life in it, but do you find that keeping yourself this busy, being so active in so many ways helps with your own mental health? Maybe not as a conscious move, but... I think so. I mean, I mean, I do keep really, really busy, I, but I've always been like that. I mean, I was like that as a kid. Hmm. Look, I'm not as frantically busy as I was. Yeah. I'm at the moment, I'm going through my next volume of diaries, which is sort of so weird. I'm always living in these different time zones. Yeah. And I've now got to a place, I'm on volume eight, so I've now got to a place where in the diaries I'm talking about the diary production of the previous volumes. <laughs> and it's just all a bit... Gets a bit meta. A rabbit hole. It is a bit meta. It is slightly getting on my nerves. How are you fitting the bagpipes into this, by the way? I, I, uh, I, uh... Often, easily, and regularly. <laughs> I, I keep glancing down at the fact sheet I've got of you, and I, I, my eye keeps being drawn to he also busts around the world with the bagpipes. I did, yeah. I did. <laughs> it's a yeah. fact that doesn't easily fit with all the other stuff that we know. <laughs> that was one of the best times of my life. How do you manage your mental health now? Like, what do you do to kind of keep yourself feeling as well as you can? I have a little device here called a jam jar. Right. Oh, I've, I think I've heard of those, yeah. You obviously haven't read the book. You'll have to go down <laughs> to these bookshops and buy it. The jam jar's in the book. <laughs> I have not read the book yet, but I hear that it is widely available. Uh, Living Better, I think it's called. It's yeah. widely available and it's brilliant. And <laughs> everybody who's read it says, it's, I mean, it's got 4.8 stars reviews on amazon it's got a very striking red and blue cover that just jumps off the shelf or the web page you're looking at it on it would be rude not to buy it so what you actually have seen the cover and not bought it that's even worse (laughs) yeah michael's deliberately walked past it a number of times in the bookshop yeah (laughs) anyway when i was um doing a lot of research i went to canada to talk to a woman called janine austin who is a genetic counsellor. And it was, I wanted to explore this thing about genetics. Mm. And that was all very interesting. You mean genetics in mental illness? Yeah. In other words, is there a genetic element to mental illness? And That is really interesting. Mm. I mean, it's a complicated subject. The short answer is no, but we're all influenced by our genes and we're all influenced. Anyway, we then got into this discussion of depression more generally. And she said, you should think of your life like it's a jam jar. And down the bottom is the sediment and that's your genes. Nothing you can do about it Mm. at all. And then this is your life, and your life fills up with good and bad and good memories, good experiences, bad memories, bad experiences. Most of them just evaporate. We don't remember them. They don't have any impact. We just kind of get on with life. And most people, most of the time, more or less manage this. She said, when we can't manage our lives, the jam jar explodes, we're out of control, and we become mentally ill. And there's jam everywhere. And, and you're covered in jam. Yeah. <laughs> Most worryingly of all. Which is horrible. Horrible. <laughs> oh, it takes ages to get that off. <laughs> and she says, she said, the thing is, we spend all our time trying to undo this stuff, life and genes, right? Right. The stuff that we can't, in fact, change. The sediment. Which you can't change at all. Whereas what we should be doing is trying to grow the jam jar. Right. Yeah. And by growing the jam jar, she meant... So this is a long-winded answer to your question about what they do. Oh, I like it. I th- I'm really interested in this jam jar thing. Focus on the things. In fact, I'll get you the drawing I did when I came back from Canada. It's very obscene, by the way. 
<laughs> I think the Freudian masculine people will have a field day with this, right? I got up in the middle of the night and I went downstairs and I, I drew my own jam jar. It, it does, to confirm to listeners who might not be able to see it, it does look a little bit like something else. Yeah. A, little, a little phallic, one might say. It does. But, however, that was entirely accidental because what I've done is I've drawn the jam jar, jeans down the bottom, life, and then what these are, the bits that look like the, the sort of, you know... Shaft. I think Michael will know the, the word probably, yes. These are, written up here, all the things that if I work on and do well, my mental health is good. Right. So the first one says FFF, which is Fiona family friends. Mm -hmm. That's relationships. So the most important thing is if your relationships, your key relationships are good, you've got a very, very good base to your jam jar. You've got a nice big chunk on the jar there. It's straight away. Exactly. Anything going badly in there and I'm, I'm struggling. And the old thing I say in the book, you know, it's the old cliche, but it's so true. We're never happier than our least happy child. So Fiona mm. family friends. Then the next one is MA, which is meaningful activity. And my MA has got dot, 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 dot. And that means that meaningful activity, as in I need to make a living. So I need to make, you know, a decent living so that we can have a nice life and holidays and nice house and all that stuff. But meaningful activity to me also means meaningful activity to change the world. Right. Right. Yeah. And then my next three are what I call the fundamentals. And they are stuff that everybody can do. We can all do this diet, sleep, exercise. Mm -hmm. Okay. Look after your diet, and that includes drink, sleep. Really try to take care of your sleep and exercise. Now, I never used to do any of those things. Mm. Didn't worry about sleep. I didn't do exercise. And now I'm a bit fanatical. Next one is Burnley Football Club. Which, again, not everyone can do that. But uh, yeah. Not everybody can do that. And I wouldn't want everyone to do that. But wasn't <laughs> it? You see that I've never seen a single minute of I'm a Celebrity, but Jordan North. Yeah, recently made famous with his happy place for Turf Moor. Happy place, Turf Moor, happy place. We were talking about this earlier, in fact, because I was talking about Burnley versus Everton. And I was amazed to know that I Michael said, knows where Turf Moor is. Yeah. I said the words Turf Moor, and Mark just about fell out of his seat. Because it, it, Michael has shown so little interest ever in sport. I was very, very surprised to find that he uh, was familiar. But I, I wasn't aware that Turf Moor had become a national phenomenon. I knew about the happy place. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Well, Turf Moor is my happy place as well. And then music, bagpipes. And then I'm into the theme stuff creativity, curiosity, scenery, water. It's really interesting, this, and it may be completely accidental. I had a really bad depression during the second lockdown. Right. Okay. I mean, just I couldn't get into the mood for anything. I was even bumping into quite good friends and finals. I didn't even want to, literally didn't want to speak to them. I would just walk on. I think a lot of people felt pretty grim about that. Yeah. I've got this fantastic Warrington Wolves hoodie that you can hide your whole face in. It. Oh, yeah, it is handy. <laughs> That's really handy. Like a grim reaper. But anyway, when the second lockdown ended and the Lido around the corner reopened, I've been going every day since and I've just felt better. Yeah. So all these different elements are basically growing the walls of the jam jar exactly. so that there's space for those thoughts and those exactly. things that exactly. are filling on top of your, your sediment, I suppose. The thing is that if you'd have said to me before I met Janine and she told me about the jam jar, and it's an obvious thing, right? It's like just a kind of self-help CBT thing, really. Yeah. But if you'd have said to me in the plane or the airport lounge on the way to Canada and said, oh, you're Alistair Campbell, can we have a chat about your depression? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How'd you deal with it? I would have said medication and I've got a psychiatrist. That's that would have been my stock answer. And that's it. Right. But now with my jam jar, they're kind of almost at the end of the process. They're they're like, you know, way off. The thing is, I use this in two ways now. I use it when I'm well, 
and that's right literally there on my desk right yeah. i have it well right and i just look at it every now and again so if i'm feeling a bit stressed i might look oh music i haven't listened to any music all day or oh burnley give the manager a ring see what's going on talk to one of the players meaningful activity i actually haven't done anything today that might actually you know so you've got basically a visual check an actual checklist of, yeah. of practical stuff which is likely yeah. to transform yeah. your mood and then when i'm depressed I try to do something related to one of them every day. It's interesting because, you know, I've heard a lot of people talk about the way they manage depression, but I don't think, even this seems very simple now. Not, I, don't, I haven't spoken to many people who literally just have a, a bunch of instructions from their well self to their depressed self. It's something self. I'll definitely try. Once you finally decide to get beyond just having the book and, and seeing the cover. <laughs> it's a lovely that, cover. When that great day comes. When you get... When you get to the very end, you'll see there's a little bit where you can design your own jam jar. Honestly, I think it's something that would really help me because I find sometimes when I get really depressed, I kind of end up just staring at a wall, unable to sort of function or even think of things that might help. Get yourself or, to Burnley, mate. I just need to go to Turf Moor, really, is the issue. But I find exercise often helps me to make myself feel better. But some days I don't want to exercise and therefore a big string of my bow has been taken off and I kind of don't know what I can do. I totally get that. But what I do in those circumstances... Let's just say at the moment, exercise for me might mean that I will do 15 minutes in the Lido and I'll do an hour on the bike, okay? Mm. If I'm feeling like that, like you just described, I won't be able to do that. So I will tell myself I'm going to walk up the stairs five times. Yeah. yeah. And it's not that difficult, but you just at the end of it, you say, and, and, and you know, often, even if you feel a tiny little bit better, it's almost like you put in a little bit of, good stuff back in the jam jar and yeah sometimes you've mm. just got to claw a bit more jar but what's quite I nice suppose, about yeah. that yeah. circumstance i suppose is that you've got lots of different things that you can do so if for whatever reason one of those one of those things isn't working for you in that moment you can look at doing something else exactly where i'm with you by the way sometimes it just doesn't work sometimes i just lie in bed and i think you know i hate the world i wish i wish i wasn't here mm. but it's definitely helped it's definitely helped i think because this is something that will inspire quite a lot of people I, something we often ask We've touched very briefly on your parents, but what sort of male role models you had or have now? What sort of men, are there examples of men that you look up to? Yeah, uh, I've never quite worked out what this thing about a role model is. Yeah, it's a slightly odd phrase actually now that I come, yeah. If you want to have a really good laugh, I, I Google, I can't remember what it was called, but I was once on a TV programme and it was a youth question time. And it was when Ched Evans, the footballer, yeah, had got out of jail and somebody, I can't remember who, were trying to sign him. Right. Yeah. And there was an absolute outcry. I went on this program and I said, look, I can't stand this thing about footballers are meant to be role models. Footballers are footballers. They're young boys who become young men who are very good at football. They become very famous and we call them role models so that the media can then chase them after their private life and pretend it's in the public interest. Right. Yeah. They never claimed to be trying to tell anyone else what to do, to to be teaching. And so, so then somebody says, well, who is a role model? I said, well, in an ideal world, parents are role models. Doctors are role models. Teachers are role models. And then I actually said to us, priests are role models. <laughs> and my, my daughter, Grace, was in the audience. And she's just there because she went along for the ride, right? And live on television, she says, Dad, you're embarrassing yourself. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> That's a tough heckle from your own kid. <laughs> but I, so I think, actually, when I think of role models, when I was growing up, a lot of them were in sport. They were people that I admired. Right. Now, sometimes, and the other reason why I'm a bit sceptical about role models, one of them was Jeff Boycott. Yeah, who... Uh... Cricketer. And, of course, since then, 
I've met him several times and he's so right wing. I mean, he basically thinks I'm a communist. <laughs> there are aspects of boycott that maybe we wouldn't look to emulate. Yeah. Yeah. They're not role. They're not, but yeah, other people that, so for example, again, not a role model, but when I was a teenager, one of Burnley's players, a guy called Paul Fletcher, who I used to really love as a player. And he's since become a really good friend. And we've actually written a novel together and we do musical stuff together. He plays the ukulele. I play the bagpipes. He's a hilarious bloke. And, Ukulele and bagpipes. What is a quite, band. That's quite a duo. It is a combination. <laughs> no, it's good. We go into old folks' homes and stuff and play. It's, do they invite you or are you just showing up and doing that? We just show up. And, you, know, <laughs> <laughs> you lot need a bit of music. Come on, guys. <laughs> Get up. So he, again, not a role model, but somebody that has qualities in him, like positivity and energy. And I mean, he's, you know, he's way older than I am, but he's got so much energy. And then I look at, you know, I find... I like to admire people. I like to admire people of real talent. You know, I read a lot about Abraham Lincoln. I think Abraham Lincoln's an extraordinary historian. I think perhaps a better way of wording it, which also is another question that we often ask people, but what qualities inspire you in people? And perhaps if you could choose three qualities that you think... That men ought to, men ought to aspire have, to or, have. Or even just qualities that you think best equip people in this world that they live in. Right, okay. Well, I'll, I'll give you... I think resilience is incredibly important. Resilience is one we've never had before, I think. Mm. I think empathy is incredibly important. Absolutely agree. And funny enough, I think mental health and mental illness, rather, I think gives you both of those. Yeah, because you're yes. forced to understand a bit more about how your brain works, I suppose. Yeah, you, you endure a lot of stuff. And also, I think you have a better understanding of what makes people strong and weak. Yeah. yeah. So I'd say resilience, empathy, and I think the ability to adapt to change that is going on around you. Um, now, all three of those things, so something like Lincoln, I mean, you know, Lincoln was a major depressive, by the way. I can't yeah. help asking whether you've read the novel Lincoln in the Bardo by George Saunders. I don't have, yeah, I didn't love it. Interesting, yeah, it's very, it's not for everyone, I think. There's another book I read about Lincoln by his, he had a legal part before he went into politics. He was a guy called, I think his name was Harnden, and his book on Lincoln had this line, melancholy dripped from him with every step he ever took. Yeah, that's the thing people say about me sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, and his wife as well, his wife was a, a major depressor. But I think, you know, if, if I think of him, definitely resilient, definitely empathetic, definitely able to adapt. Martin Luther King, I think you could say the same. I think the great political leaders, you can definitely say, you know, resilience. Yeah. And adaptability, I suppose, is essential yeah. in that because the world changes every day. Yeah. But empathy is an interesting one, definitely. It comes up quite a lot. Yeah, I like the idea of resilience, and I really hear what you say about people who experience mental illnesses. I think that resilience is often understated and not spoken about as much, whereas even somebody leaving the house one day shows an enormous act of resilience because they've done it regardless yeah. of what's going on. Yeah, it's easy to underestimate what life throws at people and everyone. Yeah. Everyone has to deal with a lot of stuff. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Alison. Honestly, that's been really fascinating. And I feel like we've all learned a lot. That's been brilliant. And um, what's that book called again? That yeah, written? we've never really, oh, we haven't properly pushed that yet. I hate, you know, I can't stand those interviews where people come on and, you know, it's <laughs> obvious they're only doing it because they want people <laughs> yeah, to yeah. get the book. We've tried to gloss over the book altogether, but it has sort of once or twice oh, cropped up. Hold on, give me a minute. Just give me a minute. Give <laughs> me a minute. It'll come back to him. <laughs> <laughs> it's called Living Better. Honestly, yeah. I'm really looking forward to diving into it. The jam jar thing will stay with me, I think. I genuinely. think it really will. Thank you for joining us, Alex. Thanks a lot, Alex. It's been Thank a real you. pleasure. All the best. Take care. Cheers. Cheers, man. 
Well, that was Alistair Campbell. Not a sentence I thought I was going to be saying a while ago, but I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Really interesting. And that jam jar analogy, I have genuinely been applying to my own brain. I love the jam jar thing. I, I still think about it sometimes. But you're right. If you said to me a year ago, will you in your life ever have a chat with Alistair Campbell? I would have said, wouldn't have thought so. <laughs> no, really, really wonderful. Uh, but actually, I, I didn't know until recently how much he does to do with mental health and all of that kind of area. And uh, so there we go. Really enjoyed it. But also, as we said at the start, we're relieved to have got it over with without disaster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And do get his book. It's genuinely really, really brilliant. As has become customary, though, in these outros of the outies, as I like to affectionately call them, to Mark's chagrin. Uh... There's nothing I can do about it. <laughs> chagrin? Chagrin? Chagrin, I think is how I pronounce it. But let's oh. rem- not forget that a when chagrin. it comes to- Well, it's a French word, Michael, but then you've probably got opinions on how to pronounce it anyway, because you're very big on that sort of thing, aren't you? We'll take that to Twitter later. But I was going to say a nice thing about you, actually, oh, so be you. quiet. Please do do I've got a lovely email about you oh. where someone said that they're always really surprised to hear your experience of masculinity and how open you are to discussion. And this uh, person, he's called Richard, um, supposes there's always been a part of him that expects cisgendered, heterosexual white men to be lost in the fantasies of masculinity that are tied so much to blood sports and flexing. But apparently Richard says that his unconscious biases have become more apparent and he's loved listening to how open-minded you have been. And I think that's very nice oh, that's thing. That's really lovely. I really value that. Although I would say that I probably am prey to a lot of the the hang-ups of well you are flexing right now no one can see I'm it flexing, but yes. exactly i'm flexing all over the place i'm not, not sure what to do when i get a compliment well actually no i would i would add to that what i've really enjoyed listening to you speaking as well is how open you've been to to learning new things and i think i've learned that from you so that's nice but before this gets too patting on the backy and too awkward i'm just gonna yes, say back away from that's me. the end of the compliments now but please do get in touch yeah next week read out something really harsh that someone sent in about me <laughs> can you tell people how to get in touch please mark and sending compliments yes, you, about me rather than yes you. you can although there's no reason why the focus should shift away from me please keep it coming for me but for whatever reason you want to get in touch the way to do it is menkindpodcast at gmail.com or of course you can tweet us or instagram all of it is menkind podcast isn't it michael it is indeed yes Uh, and next week we have a wonderful friend of mine on the podcast the drag queen jackie cox all the way from america we interrupt this broadcast to let you know that Jackie has been locked out of her house. Yes, we have an unusual situation here. Uh, the first time we've confronted this, Jackie went to let someone in to the studio and then got locked out. So we are staring at the space where Jackie used to be on a Zoom call. It's the f- I mean, we've had our ups and downs with guests, but it's the first time we've physically lost one. But we're, we've always been honest about the workings of this, and we're just straight up telling our listeners that we have quite literally lost, lost Jackie Cox. <laughs> I would say that Alistair Campbell to Jackie Cox is the most violent transition we've had, guest-wise. Like it's, the, it's the biggest contrast between two personalities. <laughs> well, you never know. People haven't listened to the Jackie Cox episode yet. No, it was a good one. It goes down in history in this podcast. Something quite odd happened during it, I think it's fair to say. What a teaser, Mark. You tease. I know. Well, I know how to get people coming back. It's all I've got now. Hustle. <laughs> So um, listen to Jackie Cox next week. I think that our regulars will really like it, I must say. And have a lovely week. Please wash your hands, uh, try and shower every day and eat breakfast. Uh, Yeah, I go along with all of that. Yeah, (laughs) don't forget all of that. All right, see you then. Not see you, connect with you is what we said. Connect. Connect with you then. We're sticking with that. Bye. (laughs) Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.